0: This is Sunny Bunch. Welcome back to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Zach Stentz, who is the writer most recently of Camp Cretaceous, uh, which is a hit Netflix series. I saw it was in the, the top 10 uh, shows the other day. Very exciting. Um, uh, yeah, you know,
1: and, and for more than one day, usually, uh, usually you get like, uh, you know, two or three days on Netflix and then, uh, then uh, you know, something else comes along.
0: Yeah. We can, we can talk about that in a second. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated the, uh, uh, by the creative perspective on the whole Netflix phenomenon. It's there's, there's, there's so much stuff there um, that it is. It's interesting to, to kind of hear how it, Works from your end of things, um, but uh, Zach, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to Zach because uh, he is a, uh, a he's a, a creative force in Hollywood. He has made some of uh, some of your favorite movies. When you were looking at um, making something for Netflix, could you could you walk me through the process there and kind of. How different it might be from other studios or or production houses, I, because I you know you had this great thread on Twitter the other day kind of explaining to normies like myself, like, well, this is what it looks like to actually pitch a show and have it be you know accepted. Um, could you could you walk us through how that works?
1: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Netflix is that you know they they're not competing with HBO. They're not competing with NBC. They're, they, they want, you know, they're not com- competing with uh, Warner Brothers. They want to be all of it. <laughs> they're, they are, they are a complete media ecosystem and they are all about saturating every single demographic, every single demographic so that they're a des- there, there's, whatever you are, there is going to be something there for you. So some, sometimes that means, you know, okay, we want something for kids, we want something for older women, we want something for people who love crime shows. Sometimes that's, you know, we want a big four quadrant hit. And uh, I, I think in the case of, uh, you know, the, the last two things I've done have been for, uh, for Netflix, the, uh, I, I did a, a movie for them a couple of years back with, with uh, McG directing. And, uh, and, at the same time I was developing the Camp Cretaceous show for about three years for them. And, uh, in, in both cases they wanted something that families could watch together. That, that mm-hmm. was a, uh, that was a hot thing. That was a hot thing for them. And, you know, pitching to them is a lot like pitching to the other is a lot like pitching to the other studios, but with the, with the knowledge that, it's changed in the last three or four years that the stereotype, you know, that everything is changing so fast in Hollywood, that the stereotype used to be that whatever you brought to Netflix, they were going to buy. That is, you know, like you've seen the comedy sketches where sure. Netflix is like throwing stacks of money at people. Sure. That is very much no longer the case they're very much aware of their dominant position in the market now. And it's much more, well, what can you bring us that we don't, what can you bring us that we don't already have because we already have everything?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, how do you, how do you square that circle then? I mean, when you're, when you're putting together a pitch for, you know, the network that has everything uh, but wants even more, what, what, what do you, how do you kind of, uh, you know, uh, sweeten the deal for them?
1: Um, You know, this, the same way that I do for everyone else. I I can't, uh, honestly, I don't think of pitches with a particular customer in mind. I I try and lead with the creative and try and lead with uh, the, what makes me excited about what makes me excited about this because, and then, and then go outward from there. Because frankly, if you can't excite, yourself with something you're not going to excite anyone else so you know and and in both of the cases you know in uh, Rim of the World and then with Camp Cretaceous I wanted to do something that we you know I I wanted to bring back an almost dead genre which is the kids on an adventure together genre and Hmm. uh and in in this case Netflix you know, has been kind of rushing into these areas that have kind of died out, um, that the other studios have stopped doing. Um, you know, for example, the romcom almost exclusively lives on Netflix and streaming mm-hmm. now. Um, yeah. it's, it's very rare even when theaters were open to see a, to see a romcom there, but you'll see it, you know, but Netflix loves them and the, the audiences love them. So in, in this case, my instinct was, you know, the, the kind of Goonies, um, ET, you know, kid again, kid and teen centric adventure genre that I grew up on and that I really loved has, has died out um, for the by and large, and uh, and this felt like a fun opportunity to bring it back. And Netflix seems very aware of that, and they 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 do like re- reviving uh, you know reviving genres that seem moribund.
0: Yeah, I mean it it's interesting. You know, I I, I watched Rim of the World and I, I it really I do I do love it as that kind of Spielbergian throwback, right? Like this, you know, you've got you've got these kids who are trying to uh make their way through the world and not getting much help from adults. Um, in fact, like it almost felt like you guys went out of the way to kill every adult on screen, uh, if uh, except for I think the guy right at the end, the uh, the the general, um, which was which was which was kind of a you know it was amusing and it definitely made me it it reminded me of those like kind of kid empowerment type movies, um, but it feels like the sort of thing that you you couldn't take to a universal or. A you know I don't know MGM or Paramount uh, these days anymore that they would just look at it and say well how are we supposed to spend fifty million dollars on this you know yeah. and market it
1: yeah I, I think that's I, I think that's um, that's very true and it, again let's 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 assume for the sake of argument that theaters are going to come back but there is a different barrier there is a different barrier to entry for here's my ten bucks or my twelve bucks to buy a movie ticket and to get my ass out of the house. And uh, I'm going to click on this tile because it seems interesting, and I, I think Netflix has has figured out that uh, that it's a different uh, calculus that goes into whether an audience wants to watch something or not when they make it so easy to uh, to click on it.
0: Yeah, and and that the ease of the clickability. I mean, you you hinted at this a little bit earlier. Just the. Um, the kind of tendency for something to be in the top 10 for a day or two and then, and then fade away. Is that, is that a fear for you as a creator that you're going to make something and it's going to be, you know, on, it's going to live on Netflix forever, but people will only really see it for a day or two and then it goes away
1: yeah i mean i mean it is a it is a fear in a way that uh that that you become this uh this drop in this ocean of this drop in this ocean of content that they have and that they're not super big into marketing campaigns that that you know netflix's idea of a thirty million dollar ad buy is your tile appears at the top of the screen is is that your tile appears at the top of the screen yeah. that you know it's it's very different and of course because of the constant churn, you, you know, very soon you find yourself in the back catalog. But, but frankly, I, I don't think that's, that's any different anymore than, than how it is. I think that's increasingly how people are consuming media and your job as a creator is to hopefully create something sticky and memorable enough that people will keep finding it and, and people will, uh, will keep discovering it. Um, one one of my very best friends um, for example, wrote a movie that did get released theatrically and got some of the worst review, you know, like like just poisonously bad reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people are discovering it on streaming and discovering that they're actually and the intended audience in particular, which was uh, which was teens and young adults, are finding it and actually saying saying many of them aren't even aware of the, of the reviews that it got when it Mm -hmm. was in theaters. And they're like, we really like this. They're like, Mm -hmm. like this is, you know, uh, this is something we really enjoy. So, uh, you know, I, I I like to think that the long tail, as they say, still, still does exist even, even in the age of Netflix.
0: That's interesting. I, uh, you know, I, I, I often think about this uh, uh, as a critic myself, you know, like (laughs) how much use some of these reviews are for the intended audience, because the intended audience, as you say, often is not reading, uh, you know, what, what, what the, the 30 something critic is saying about their, you know, teen rom-com movie, what do they care? It doesn't matter. Um, but, but then that having everything there on Netflix or HBO max or wherever it kind of, uh, it, it creates an avenue of discovery that I think was not, really there, you know, even in the age of blockbuster or family video or whatever. Right.
1: Um, Yeah. I think, I I think that, I think that's right. And I'm, you know, I'm someone who I grew up in a very small town with, uh, you know, one movie theater with two screens And, you know, so, so the vast majority of even big movies that I ended up seeing when I was a kid and a, uh, in a, in a teenager were, were, you know, six months later when they, when they hit video and, you know, you, you, you beg the, uh, you know, I, I, I beg the, uh, um, owner of the video store to give me the, uh, the promotional temple of doom poster (laughs) when they were, when they were done with it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's great.
0: Uh, so let's let's walk through what the what a pitch for a show is like, because I think, again, this is something that, you know, your average uh, viewer or consumer of media has no experience with. I mean, when what we, we all we all work jobs, and we all have had to pitch things to bosses, but I feel like it's very different when you're pitching a TV show or a movie or something. So um, could you could you walk us through the stages and what you put into your pitch packages for the for the Exact.
1: Yeah, every pitch is different. And uh, I, I will say, and different writers and different creators have very different ways of pitching. Uh, in the words of the great sage Owen Wilson, there are many paths to the waterfall. Um, and uh, and all I can speak to is my own experience in pitching TV, which is I will say is very different from pitching a movie. I just right before I pitched a movie right before I was on this call with you. And it was very much, here's the theme at the top. Here are other movies that it will remind you of tonally. And then right into, I'm going to tell you the story of the three act structure. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're pitching a TV show, especially one that you're hoping to go on for seasons and seasons, um, I tend to, to focus on the characters more than anything, because at the end of the day, people are, people are mostly watching television for, for, for the characters, even more so than the plot. So I generally will start by talking about the main character and the supporting characters. Um, I will give the 30,000 foot view of, of the story of the show. And then I will focus in on here in broad strokes is what the first episode looks like. Here in even broader strokes is what the first season looks like. And then here are some notional ideas for what other seasons could look like in case, you know, and and I, I like to say, most of the time you're not going to end up you're not going to end up using most or even some of the material from those future seasons but what you're doing with that notional with with those notional ideas is letting people know this is an idea that's not going to run out of gas after after 10 episodes it's mm-hmm. not you know like
0: Prison yeah. Break.
1: What's season three of that? <laughs> um, you know, like, like God bless them. They did figure yeah. out. see you know, let <laughs> put them like in another prison.
0: Seasons. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll send them to the Mexican prison. That's yeah. that's it, where they're gonna be. Yeah.
1: Um. It, yeah, they managed to do it, but but you know, in that pitch, they had to have they they had to have said, "Don't worry, this you know, like once yeah. they get out, the show is not over."
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is interesting to think about just because uh you know um the whole point of tv is that it kind of keeps going that it's you you have multiple seasons multiple stories to tell um and with with a with a project like Camp Cretaceous for instance i mean it it does seem um uh i mean i don't i don't want to spoil anything but i'm i'm curious uh, you know where where you go once the the action on the island actually ends right like once once everything you know kind of wraps up with that that first movie, then don't, I don't, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but. Uh,
1: I I am not going to spoil anything, but I will (laughs) tell you that when I, when I went in and pitched them and gave them the very extensive materials, I had notional ideas for five for five seasons and how you could make it different and interesting. um, Each of those, each of those seasons. So I will, I will say with great confidence That yes, you can. Yes, it it is an idea that sustains itself for uh, for longer than one season. Honestly, a lot of the problems are are simply logistical. Which is, um, and I never worked in animation before I did Camp Cretaceous, so it was this huge education for me. But doing, um, especially computer animated um animation is a lot more like doing live action than it mm-hmm. is like doing hand drawn animation because each of the characters in each of the sets or environments is a build in CGI. Mm. So it's very much like live action like how can we reuse the same characters? How can mm. we reuse the same sets? How you know like we we can't just draw a new dinosaur each time we want one because that's a build. So there's a certain conservation that goes on. You know, it it what the um the spoiler alert the helicopter that you see in uh, in episode six, um we couldn't afford that. That was actually um, from our sister show, uh, Fast and Furious Spy Racers. Hmm. They let us. uh, They let us use a couple of the models for their um for their vehicle for their vehicles there. So so, that's interesting. That's interesting. But then a challenge. You know, a, a challenge with the kids is is simply if hypothetically speaking you do more than one season you have the you have the issue of okay do you sk- do you skip forward and if you skip forward these are these kids are supposed to be 14 15 years old do, do you have to build new models because they've grown or mm-hmm. do you use the do you set it over a more compressed time frame and let them stay the same size but you know god bless them the the animators did a great job with like their hair gets more messed up they get dirtier they they get more than one change of clothes you know but those are all that's all art time and that's all rendering time just doing mm-hmm. something just doing something as simple as uh is that you, you you see in live action how um you remember the show lost how they had to write Walt off the show <laughs> simply because the show was taking place over the course of days and right. they cast a freaking teenager, a shrimpy teenager who you know was like six foot three by uh, by by season three, and you know yeah. come up with an explanation for how that happened over the course of a month.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that yeah. that is that's something.
1: Way to yeah, think I, that I, one out, Damon. Ah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really screwed the pooch on that one. The it, it's interesting. So, is there some synergy then? Because these are both Universal properties um using the using the models from the Fast and Furious uh cartoon for the the uh, Jurassic World cartoon. I mean I like I'm curious how that actually works. Do you just like go to the next door over and be like, "Hey guys, we need to we need to borrow this real quick."
1: Yeah, you know, in the in the case of uh in the case of Jurassic World, you know, like when we sold that show dreamworks animation had a massive output deal with um with netflix i think they were supplying them with like 15 shows or something like Mm -hmm. that and each one of them was in different animation styles but we were very lucky in that one, you know, the Fast and Furious show was the next pod over in the office building that we were at, mm-hmm. and they were using a similar enough style of animation that we could we could share assets a little bit. That isn't necessarily the case. If, you know, like, you know, we couldn't use a horse from, you know, the Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron yeah. show because it's a right. completely different animation style, whereas yeah. we were sharing the, you know... Um, the kind of same aesthetic of the characters are slightly stylized, but the, uh, the vehicles and the, uh, and the, uh, non-human creatures are as re you know, as realistic as humanly possible for a TV yeah. budget.
0: Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's other things to consider here as well with the, uh, matching up with the movie. You, you tweeted out a great clip from YouTube of somebody had synced up the action in the cartoon with the the action that was taking place in Jurassic World on that, that helicopter scene that you mentioned. Um and it's it's it it really is interesting because they both work perfectly with each other. I mean it like it it you know having to balance that you know real world versus cartoon whatever is is fine but just tonally and stylistically they both really match. Um is, yeah. is that something you know ha, how do how do you as the creator kind of make that work just on its own
1: and then it syncs up so well. It, It it honestly, it synced, you know, like, like the, the writers on the show and the animators, you know, studied that first Jurassic World movie, like it was the Zapruder film, you know, almost frame by frame. And they Mm. did, you know, they did a whole chart of like, okay you know, at this point, the Indominus is here and then the Indominus is here, but this is several hours difference. So within those several hours, maybe it had a cross with our kids, you know, there, there, there was the plot aspect and then there, there was simply the, the tonal choice that we all made of, of yes, there's going to be kid friendly humor. Yes. There's going to be a dinosaur poop joke, but it will feel as if it could plausibly take place in the same universe as the live action films and the main way that you do that is is frankly simply playing the emotions and playing the stakes is being completely real and and actually believing that these that these kids are in uh, in mortal danger at different different times I, I, saw, I, I saw one YouTube review of these these two guys watching the show and they actually shot their own reactions when they an uh, episode spoiler episode four when the kids witness one of the park workers getting eaten by the Indominus. And, you know, they're they're like they're recoiling the way the kids are. They're like, oh, we didn't realize this was a show that they were going to go there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, and uh I one thing I really admire about uh this and Rim of the World as well is the um is the the treatment of the subject matter with the kids because it you know it 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 it, it feels I mean obviously it doesn't feel real in the sense of real, but it feels real in the sense of kids have to see things that are bad. Sometimes they have to, you know, experience things that are not great. Um, and, and we, we, I, I feel like you as a creator don't really sugarcoat that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's part of my storytelling DNA. I I love kid and teen protagonists partly because their emotional lives are so huge and, and, you know, they're much more kind of open books in that way. Um, But it goes, you know, I grew up on the great Spielberg films and the great kind of eighties kid, kid adventure films. But even before that, you know, like growing up on fairy tales and, you know, Grimm's folk tales and things like that, horrible things happen in those stories. And the kids are witness to horrible things and they lose their parents and, witches want to kill them and all you know, all kinds of things happen. And I think those are valuable feelings for kids to feel um, because the message of all of those stories tends to be the same, which is the world is a scary place. There are bad things and bad people that can happen, but you can get through it. And you have you have it in you to get through it if you're smart and Empathetic and decent, and maybe a little lucky, um, mm. and that's a—I I think that's a—a a good thing for for young viewers to to get from their um, from their TV and movies.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, there—I I, don't—I don't want to make this a show about controversy because it's not what the show is about. But I—I I, you had mentioned something when we were we were talking about the whole cuties thing um, that that Netflix has been going through. Uh, that there, what do, is there a possibility that filming just in general is inherently kind of exploitative of children? And like, what do we, how do we protect them the best way? And one thing you had suggested, I I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell if it was tongue in cheek or not at first, but was using adult performers in mocap type situations to, to actually portray you know, teenagers. Um, is that a thing that you could see happening? Is that is that are you were you were you being tongue in cheek? I mean, I'm I'm just I'm curious.
1: I was being a little tongue in cheek, but I was being tongue in cheek to kind of provoke people to kind of think more deeply about about the subject, um, because it is it is a fraught subject when there that there are no easy answers to. As we know, there is a whole history of kids and entertainment you know, got going back even before the movies and, uh, and, and, uh, in and TV of child performers being exploited in different ways, sexually, emotionally, financially. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's a fraught and difficult thing. And yet at the same time, I've also met young performers who love what they do. And, you know, it's, it's, and and have wonderful and supportive parents and not stereotypical stage mommies and stage daddies and it's to me It's much more, you know, when it's positive, it's much more of a, the case of it's the performing equivalent of a kid who wants to be an Olympic athlete and their parents are taking them to their hours and hours of practice after school every day and driving them to meets and, you know, hours and hours. It's a, it's a huge commitment to the whole family, but you also almost have an obligation if your kid has a passion and kid your kid has something that he or she is very good at to uh, to let them pursue that. So I you know, I, yeah. I, I don't think there are, I don't think there are easy answers here, but I think it's incumbent on all of us who work in the entertainment industry to be conscious of and to frankly and to protect the The kids who who work in the who work in the industry a lot a lot better than we are now, and that's not just you know like keep them from getting their money you know getting their money stolen and and keep them from from being ripped off, but but also just you know even in the way you film a kid or a, or a teenager, there are choices that go in that go into that, and there mm-hmm. are exploitative ways, and there are non exploitative ways. Um, but those are all things that should be, you know, but those decisions are ones that should be taken with great thought and great care because, you know, it, as adults, we, that's, that's, that's part of the deal of being an adult is that you have the responsibility to protect people who, who aren't yet adults.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it really is a, it is an interesting and fraught subject. And I, I, uh, again, I don't, I don't want this to be the controversy show. That's not what. We're going for here, um, but it, it's something to think about, and I think to think about in ways beyond people are thinking about it on Twitter, which has just been Twitter. Shockingly, is not a great place for nuance. And no, Twitter, Twitter is a, a
1: terrible place for nuance. <laughs> but you know, I'll give you an example. I won't say you know because I've worked on multiple projects that have had kids and teens. But I remember, you know, I remember a director. Um, you know, like shooting a a young actor, you know, like like shooting a young actress and we're in Video Village looking at it and the director, the director said, and it was in a very like non-creepy way. It's like, it's like, she's so pretty that I have to be very careful about how I shoot her because it mm. would be very in, you know, you think about, you know, poor Brooke Shields, um, you know, going sure. all the way back to Pretty Baby and things like that. It's like, it's like, it's you know it's like I have to be very conscious that I'm shooting her in a way that doesn't sexualize her because she's a kid and yeah. and I was super impressed by that I was and I was super impressed that the director was actually thinking about those things in choosing how to frame shots frame shots and light shots because that would have been creepy and that would have been creepy and exploitative to to shoot uh, you know a 13 year old actress that way
0: yeah. Yeah, Um, let me uh, let me shift gears slightly, and um, I I saw you mention something on Twitter today, actually, about the way Disney Plus is running their shows and kind of the um, you know the uh, just some stuff you had heard. And I'm I'm curious as a as a creator, um, what is your kind of preferred writers room slash how you run a show? scenario. I mean I like there there are a bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, and I'm 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 always I'm always interested to hear what what uh, creators prefer.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I grew up in the very old I, I grew up as a writer in the very old school there's a showrunner who is an executive producer and is also the head writer and the show you know it's whether it's a, a Shonda Rhimes or a Greg Berlanti or a Ryan Murphy the the show is kind of a product of their head and they you have a staff of writers who sit around in a room together and their job is to use their own creativity to channel the voice of the to channel the voice of the show and uh, and to to figure out how to figure out how to write to that we are going you know the models in TVs are changing incredibly rapidly. We have now the model where there is no writing staff. It's it's like British TV where it's just one one person coming in and writing six or eight episodes, and you know as if it's a long screenplay, and they're still in charge. And then there's the model that's emerging at places like Disney Plus, especially with their big marquee titles, where they're much more director driven. They're much, they're essentially, you know, whereas in the five years before we saw the TV model being exported to features, you had features being written by writer's rooms. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you have the feature model being imported to TV where you have the, um, the reins of the creative process being held by the director and not the, uh, not the head writer. And, and you know where the head writer is like Third And actually called the head writer and not the showrunner and the head writer is third behind the, uh, the um, director. And in in some cases, a studio executive sits in the writer's room every, every Mm -hmm. day, which, which terrifies me. That sounds, you know, (laughs) when I hear that, it sounds like, you know, like freaking, you know, Soviet army circa 1942. And you've got the political officers next to you asking why you're retreating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is that that's interesting. It's fascinating because I like, like you say there're just so many uh there's so many different ways to do it. I am I as uh as somebody who's worked with Netflix, I I've always heard that they are very good and maybe I'm wrong. Please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've always heard that they're very good on um showing filmmakers and TV show uh, runners, like, what is working uh, with the data? Like, what people are, where people tu- tune out um, or where they, uh, you know, switch to something else. I'm just curious if they shared any of that with you on Rim of the World or Camp Cretaceous and like, if that if that helps or hinders the creative process.
1: I, I haven't I had that happen yet on Camp Cretaceous, although I'm expecting it soon because they, they have the standard way of doing. They have the like after 10 days, they're like they, they open the vault a little and say, this is what our data shows of mm-hmm. what we've w- you know, of of how people are watching, how much people are watching, what percentage of the people are watching all the way through. And then they they and then again at thirty days they're like and here's how it's performing after after thirty days and it is you know it, it's interesting and and kind of and it all goes into the you know it all goes into into your head when you're hopefully doing future seasons or sequels or or what have you but you can't let it you you can't let the data drive the creative process I, mm-hmm. I maybe some people can I I can't work that way um i i have to lead with story and then okay do we need do we need something here so people you know don't tune out yeah you do think about those things but but hopefully hopefully the data is not the the tail that's wagging the dog of the story yeah um, well, you know that that
0: was pretty much everything I wanted to ask you. Uh, I, I always like to ask all of my guests if there's anything that they think that people should know. I mean, I, is there anything that you you think people should be aware of about what you do and and what the you know misconceptions that you want to correct here uh, when, with a, with an open mic? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the only misperception that I think a lot, you know, the misperception that I think that that a lot of people have is of working Hollywood is being this r- very rarefied environment. And, and, you know, it's a listers going from private yacht to private jet and, and things like that. And I, I guess I would like to say, you know, that my actual experience of Hollywood is much more blue collar than that. It's much more, you know, like a, a, a film or a TV set is much more like, you know, it's a construction site with snacks and, you know, <laughs> where, where people are, where people happen to be act, acting in the middle. And I, I, I guess I, I love, you know, I, 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 want people to enjoy the product that we, that we do, but I love people to have a, a, a less kind of uh rarefied and, and, and more realistic view into, into what goes into making it, which is, which is, you know, uh, a bunch of, you know, middle-class to, to blue collar people doing jobs and, and trying our best to keep you all entertained.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Zach, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. I really had a great time. These are great questions.
0: We will uh, be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. (laughs)